I think the, the way that I find that's most helpful to think about it is almost like what are the different values that are sort of the antidotes to the kind of harmful values that capitalism holds and the, you know, the outcomes that it creates from that. Um, and so like what are a set of values that would lead us in a different direction? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that takes you behind the scenes of how small business owners are building stronger businesses. Now, this show is called What Works for a reason. Sometimes it's a declaration. This is what worked for this small business. But often it's a question. What works? Today's episode is very much a question, many questions, really. What works when it comes to selling when you want to avoid manipulative or exploitative practices? What works when your values conflict with many of the best practices of selling online, but you still want people to buy your stuff? What works when it comes to sales in a business that is actively anti-racist or anti-capitalist? And even more bluntly, can you even sell things without causing harm or perpetuating harmful systems? Kate Strathman is the founder of Wanderwell, a bookkeeping and consulting firm that grows thriving businesses while investigating new models for being in business. Recently, Kate took a bit of a detour with how she normally builds her business, which is typically about 90% referral-based and fueled by deep relationship and community building. She decided to offer a small group program called the Equitable Business Incubator as a way of exploring anti-capitalist business practices and how they apply to the small businesses we're building. To fill the program, Kate needed to sell differently which led her to asking the question, can you even sell things as an anti-capitalist? Now, while that might not be your specific question, I have a feeling that you too have been wondering how you can effectively sell your offers without causing harm, perpetuating harmful systems, or damaging relationships. And that's why I knew Kate and I needed to explore this topic on the show. This is a conversation about what a kinder, less harmful sales process could look like, and it probably contains more questions than answers. But I'm confident those questions can help you find the answers that are right for you and the sales system that you want to build to make your business stronger. We start out by defining what we're really talking about when we talk about capitalism and anti-capitalism. Then Kate shares how the Equitable Business Incubator came to be and how she ended up selling it. And then we dig into what makes many of the sales formulas and best practices being taught today problematic and how to think differently to create your own alternative practices. Now let's take a look at what works for creating less harmful sales systems. Kate Strathman, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be back. I am happy to have you back and especially to talk about this very complex, very big, very weird, but awesome topic of capitalism or anti-capitalism and sales. But before we can get to the sales and selling piece, I think that we need to come up with some, uh, or we just make sure that everyone's on the same page with some of the language that we're going to be using. Um, and so let's just start off very broadly by kind of answering the question, what are we really talking about when we talk about capitalism? I always like to start most broadly of saying that, you know, economic exchange, which is kind of what we're talking about in business, is about getting needs met. And that's like food and housing and all the way up to like self-actualization and taking a meditation class. And 
capitalism is an economic system that's defined, and I'm, I'm drawing from Kim Kelly, who's an awesome labor reporter based in Philly, and she wrote a Capitalism 101 article for Teen Vogue that I often send to people. Um, and so this is, I'm kind of paraphrasing her, but uh, she talks about capitalism being a system defined uh, by trade industry profits being controlled by private companies instead of by the people whose time and labor powers those companies. So like you and I are kind of examples of that as, you know, we own businesses by ourselves. Mm -hmm. You own a business and a partnership. Um, we have employees. They don't necessarily share in the profits unless we choose to do something like that. You know, and I, I think it's it's helpful also to talk about like our current system in the particularly in the United States being yeah. a flavor that we would call neoliberal capitalism. And what that really just means simply is that the system wants to extend the market as far as possible, meaning like privatize as many things as it possibly can. Um, so like we see that really visibly and this is so pertinent for right now in like healthcare, yeah, obviously. And what a giant pain in the ass that is to figure out as an employer, especially a small one. One of the like key features of capitalism is that it's a li linear growth and progress model, meaning that like the goal is to continue growing, to continue accumulating, to use the economic term and to like create as much private capital as possible. Um, so that's like how we like burn the Amazon, but it's also, you know, how we need to get more and more followers on social media and eyeballs and attention and like that kind of like endless churn. I think that's like also, I'd see that as like a linear growth point. Um, and then the other like key feature that I think people really are seeing, especially this year is that it's hierarchical and concentrates wealth. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, in that like linear progress, generally that means that like things are getting pulled to the top. And so that's how we get like Zuckerberg making billions of dollars in a pandemic from like openly spreading disinformation and white terrorism. Um, and that's like really not from his labor. Uh, like, right. he, like it's not cause he did a better job and he got a big bonus, like, because he was super productive himself. Um, like that's, you know, advertising dollars and data mining and a whole mess of employees that are creating that value for him to benefit from. Um, so I think, you know, those are like, I think in my mind, some of the key sort of features to talk about. And I think where people like instinctively more and more understand that there's something wrong or that there's something harmful going on, like that's where they see it or that's where we're like experiencing it going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right in that a lot of people right now, even if they're not familiar with <clears throat> prob the problems of capitalism specifically, if definitely if they're not familiar with um, uh, anti-capitalism or just even other systems other than capitalism, they do have a sense that something is wrong right now and not just politically speaking, but economically speaking. Um, and this whole all of 2020, not just the pandemic, but everything in the news cycle right now points to something is not right here. And 
so much money and time and energy has been devoted to a story around capitalism and the free market, that this is how we solve problems. This is how we get people taken care of. This is good, good, good. Um, why is that not the case? Or why is it not all? Is there something good there? And, and if so, why is it not all good? Well, I think, you know, I asked this question in the um, equitable business incubator, which I know we'll talk about in a bit, mm-hmm. of like, are there benefits to this? And, you know, and I think one of them that people point to is choice. Mm-hmm. You know, like you want to go buy a t-shirt. There's like a billion t-shirts out there. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you're not like, you know, and I, I think a lot of times in our imagination, we think like sort of like Soviet era socialism, and it's like everybody's mm-hmm. wearing gray t-shirts, and that's all that's available. But so I think like choice is one thing. But, you know, what I would say to that, to answer that, though, is that we have so much inequality right now. And that's been, a, that's like a key feature, as I said, in the in this economic system is Mm -hmm. that it concentrates wealth, it concentrates power. And so, you know, what we're seeing, especially in like all the upheaval this year is there's like a real stratification between like who's okay and who's not and who has access to care and who doesn't, who has access to healthcare and who doesn't, um, who has access to wealth and can like go to their second home. Um, You know, like all of those kinds of things are like, I think real features of what this economic system has created today that's like really problematic and scary. So one of the things that I've had my eyes really opened up to as my eyes have been opened up to this, this whole uh, kind of sister system to capitalism, which is white supremacy, um, is the interplay between white supremacy and capitalism. Can you, <laughs> although we could spend a full hour or more on that particular conversation, can you give us just a, sort of a brief overview of the relationship between white supremacy as a system and capitalism as a system? Yeah, I'm still working on my like three sentence if that's even possible, (laughs) (laughs) like how to even talk about this. We talk about the racial wealth gap between black and white people, particularly. That wealth gap is vast. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we can look historically, like there's a direct line from the racial wealth gap today and access to wealth and resources and capital and like all of those things, all the way back to slavery and that Mm -hmm. system of ownership of black bodies. And then how that's been supported through laws and culture that give white people an economic advantage at the expense of black people, you know, and so some of the ways I think we see that like play out. I mean, there's, again, like this could be a whole episode of itself. But, you know, when we talk about like essential workers Mm -hmm. um, versus like, again, like the folks that are making billions of dollars during this economic crisis. Um, the people making billions of dollars are generally white men. Um, when we talk about essential workers, a lot of those folks are black and brown people. And that's just like, that's structural in terms of like access to jobs, access to education, resources, like all of those things. I'm in Philadelphia. Our rates of business ownership mirror this, mm-hmm. even though like population wise, uh, I would call Philly a very black city in a lot of ways, like population wise, um, business ownership doesn't reflect that at all. 
mostly it's white people that own businesses here. And a lot of that's access to capital and resources and, and things like generational wealth, I think have a big impact on that. So like, like, you know, for myself as a white woman, um, you know, I had, there's legacies of entrepreneurship in my family that go back a few generations. I had an uncle business owner with a car dealership business owner that basically funded my college education. Um, wow. And now those kind of things, like they really matter generationally. And those are like privileges that I have directly from being a white person. I think it's also worth calling out that there's cultural it's not just economic systems at play, but there's also the cultural systems at play too. So white supremacy has cultural implications and capitalism has cultural implications and they are very similar. <laughs> They're very, very similar. And I think we'll get into that probably more as we start actually talking about the sales processes too, because those sales processes are being built on top of a lot of those cultural foundations too. So we're going to talk about how business comes into play um, in capitalist systems or not capitalist systems. But first, let's talk a little bit about anti-capitalism. What are we talking about when we talk about anti-capitalism? We can define capitalism pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. It's harder to define anti-capitalism because we're talking about so many different things. Right. Um, and there's a lot of different discourse and conversations and disagreement and yada, yada, yada. I think the, the way that I find that's most helpful to think about it is almost like, what are the different values that are sort of the antidotes to the kind of harmful values that capitalism holds and, and the, you know, the outcomes that it creates from that? Um, and so, like, what are a set of values that would lead us in a different direction? Those are things like solidarity is a really big one. Like, just the idea that, um, you know, we can mutually meet each other's needs and that would be a good thing. And it's not mm -hmm. like every man for himself or herself right. or their self um, to, you know, I'm not, I'm not alone in whether I succeed or fail. Like that, that's a collective project. Um, like that's very much an anti-capitalist idea that shows up in a lot of different, you know, frameworks and discourses. And, and I think, and in business solutions, like when we kind of like talk about that more specifically, that's one that like, I think about a lot. I don't know if there's, there's things that, that come to your mind for you in terms of like values or like how you've been thinking about this. You know, in my business and things that we've done to restructure how we create value, how we deliver value and how we exchange value, it's become a much more collaborative, co-creative environment. And to me, those are really important values that certainly uh, break down some of the the systems that are most harmful about yeah. capitalism um, and white supremacy. And then I have found that there's a real kind of anti-institutional thread in my uh, in my whole life's interests. So whether yeah. we're talking yeah. about like yeah. religionless Christianity and what does faith without church look like, uh, which was my college interest, or whether we're talking about business and finding what works for you in your business instead of totally. what some kind of institution or guru tells you you should be doing there's that value as well um and that and i think you know it's it's very easy to build a kind of guru institutional type of business uh yeah. in a capitalist system it's much harder to build a very collaborative co-creative anti-institutional business in a capitalist um system yeah. 
Okay, so let's talk about the role of business because I think this is where people start. Like they understand there there are problems with capitalism. They understand that especially right now, something feels very wrong and it feels very wrong in an extremely deep and rooted way. And then they say, but I'm a business owner. Are you saying I have to give up my business? Are you saying I have to give up my livelihood in order to... Uh, rethink this system. So from your perspective, can you even have a business in a system other than capitalism? I I think it's like real damn hard to own a business and not participate in the economics of capitalism. You know, Mm -hmm. like we're all in the system. I've put this question out a lot in the last six months and like on Instagram and just to like understand how people are thinking about it. And one of the things that's been most interesting to me is that there's a lot of like confusion that just uh, like income equals capitalism or like Mm -hmm. having a livelihood equals capitalism. And I think those are like outcomes of whatever we're doing in a business, but they don't necessarily need to happen in like a capitalist mechanism in order to not get bogged down into in the like sort of semantics of it. And like, am I a capitalist if I'm a business owner? And I think there was some like conversations I've been part of where like, does a sole member LLC count because you don't have employees and, you know, like things like that. And ultimately, I think I'm just like more interested in what kinds of decisions and repercussions happen as a as a result of our values. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so rather than like getting hung up on like whether me personally, I'm a capitalist or not. And like technically, yeah, I am. I make assets from labor of other people that I employ. At the same time, you know, there are a lot of features in Wanderwell, and like, you know, this is off topic for today, of how I share power within the organization and will like continue to do that. And I, and I think that's like one of the key features of like, how do you understand an anti-capitalist business or start to like work in an anti-capitalist manner as a business owner? Uh, like one of the main features is like, well, how do you how do you hold power? How do you share power? And that can be with like customers, clients and a sales process, too, for sure. You know, and I, and I think some of it's like just doing things like being transparent or mm-hmm. like trying to create structures that address some of the like systems that create inequality. So. I mean, there's been a lot of discourse around like anti-racist business practices and like, how do you grapple with that um, in different kinds of ownership structures or different kinds of business models? In a like explicit way, the whole cooperative movement is about anti-capitalist business Mm -hmm. and like as a main form of economic resistance, like that's that community is doing that. You know, normally when people say, I don't want to get into the semantics or not to get lost in the semantics, I'm like, but semantics are important, (laughs) which is why I wanted to start the conversation by kind of defining, all right, what are we really talking about when we talk about capitalism? What are we really talking about when we talk about anti-capitalism? I I think words and phrases matter. And also, uh, one of the things that I do love the most about this conversation is that while we have terms that we can kind of use to loosely signify the different systems that we participate in or don't participate in at different levels, what you said about choice and uh, the values that we, you know, that you might have slightly different values than I have, or you might prioritize different values than I prioritize. But 
in prioritizing different values than the system, we are doing something different and we're resisting, we're pushing back, we're uh, forging, you know, new territory in uh, different ways. And I think that's actually really exciting. There's these systems that we participate in and there are so many options that you have for doing things differently in a way that can start to push back on or start to recreate, re-envision an economic system that works better for more people. I think that kind of leads us pretty well into the inquitable equitable business incubator. So you started, you have been kind of putting this work out into the world in different ways over the years. But this summer, you put together a program and sold a program called the Equitable Business Incubator. So give us sort of just the quick elevator pitch. I know you have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) For the Equitable Business Incubator. And then we'll get into actually kind of how you sold it or how you approach the sales process for it. So this incubator is bringing together a bunch of different threads of work that I've had for years. Um, And I wanted to create a space, especially in the kind of cauldron of 2020, for folks to really come together and grapple with these alternatives that we've been talking about and what does it mean? And, you know, and like we're saying in this conversation, I don't have the like seven point checklist of like, and when we talk about funnels, we can, you know, like, I can't make a funnel about this uh, kind of work. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's too messy. Um, But I want to, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in working with so many business owners and co-ops and like people that are trying to do things differently is that there's like three interlocking pieces that kind of happen. One is our personal shit around money and like how we personally interact with the system. The second is what are the economics we're in? What does that look like, feel like, taste like? And then the third is, well, then how do we do things differently? And how did all those pieces interact? And so this program was put together just to, to like really get in there with a group of people and explore all of these topics and think about what alternatives would look like. How do we create different practices um, and like kind of marry the like personal reflection, the like analysis and, you know, re- learning um, with like, all right, but like really I have to show up tomorrow and like open my inbox and like deal with this shit. So what does that look like? Um, So that was sort of the project. And we just wrapped up yesterday, actually. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's very timely. Yeah. And I want to kind of call out at this point too, that while uh, listeners are really familiar, I think with this kind of program model and it may not, sound unusual to them that you created something like this and sold it. This is not the business model that you operate in typically. And for you, creating the program and selling the program was something new or new-ish anyway. We used to teach and do a different program, but that was like years ago. So it's not like you had an audience that was used to being sold to, that was used to you making offers like this. This was something a little out of left field, not unwanted. I know people have been asking you for this sort of thing, but it doesn't that doesn't mean that it still didn't require a lot of thought and intention on your part. So let's start there. Um, 
I know you wanted to be very intentional about how you put the program together and how you sold it. What kind of constraints did you put on yourself when it came to how you were going to approach actually selling the incubator? Yeah, the first part is a lot of my constraints were driven by the kind of experience I wanted to offer people and like who I wanted to be in the room. And I think that's like an important sort of probably first context is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, my intention in this played out, like this is how it happened, fortunately, too, is I wanted to really create a space for in-depth conversation and that like people would really engage and get in there with me. I'm not just, I'm not, it's not me to like broadcasting. It's not just me teaching. It's like, I really want people to be engaged and like get into the messiness of this kind of conversation. So, you know, like pressure would not help that Mm -hmm. (laughs) goal. Like I don't, I don't want to trick anybody or pressure anybody that's on the fence to come into the room. Like I really wanted the right people there. You know, and I think like talking about our money shit in our businesses and like all the conflicts and around that, um, like it's not a light or low engagement kind of thing <laughs> at all. And so like part of I think the like constraints were really driven by like, well, I'm not trying to sign up like 500 people to my webinar. Mm-hmm. I want like, you know, eight to 10 people, maybe max in a room of the right kind of people and people that already have some awareness around this kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. aren't new to business. And like, so there were, I think a lot of the constraints were driven by like, I have a pretty somewhat specific kind of person in mind. And there were people in my community that I knew wanted this kind of thing. So I was trying to like design it to them. It should be a huge takeaway for people when they're starting to rethink or reapproach what they think about sales and selling in the first place, because what, a problem I see is people trying to match a kind of program, a kind of offer, a product to sales systems that were designed to sell something else entirely, right? right? Totally. And so I think a lot of people who are listening w- would probably love the idea of building a program just for the right people for in-depth conversation for eight to 10 folks yep. who already know they want to show up for that, right? Yep. That's exactly what they want. And yet, then they'll try and build a sales funnel for it. Well, the sales funnel is built or designed to create a different kind of experience for a different kind of product for a different kind of outcome. And so even if you're, you don't want to say there's something wrong with the sales funnel in the first place, which we can get to, um, it's not a good fit, right? Right. And so I think just stopping to say, what kind of experience do I want to create? And who am I creating this experience for is like the perfect place to start when it comes to rethinking what your sales process is going to look like. And honestly, like it would be really out of integrity with Wanderwell and the business that I've built because like we've built an ecosystem of intimacy, which is what I call Mm -hmm. it. It's like very relational. Um, And so if I all of a sudden like came out of left field for this and I only need like eight people. Right. So it's not like I'm trying to like feeling like I, I, and I see this a lot of my clients too and people like, and I definitely fall, fall prey to this too, where like you sort of get overwhelmed by needing to reach all of the people in the world um, mm-hmm. You know, and like social media really creates this amplification. And, I, and the way that I like ground myself in that is like, I only need the eight, like these eight people. And I already know most of them. Right. Because like, I've been in conversation with them for a while. <laughs> 
Um, and I, and I think that's the other thing that was like, you know, like maybe just a reminder to myself, which was like, I don't need new people. Like I already have the community. I already know who I want in the room. I don't have to feel any sort of weird certain way because most of the people that took it are folks I've worked with before. Like that's actually really great. Um, Mm -hmm. It means I'm like really serving my community and my need, their needs. And so, you know, I think that like informs a lot of it. And and then I would say the other thing is like, what, obviously, I didn't want to replicate qualities of the system that we're trying to critique. Mm-hmm. And I can say more about this in sort of like my like, oh, God, how many emails do I send on the last day <laughs> moment yeah. of wanting to die? Um, <laughs> but, but I think the other like point and that's important, feels important this year is that like I was running on fumes Mm-hmm. While I was putting this together and doing this, which was like June, July, beginning of July. Um, and that's just from like the spring and the pandemic and the upright, you know, like everything. I hadn't had a vacation yet and like just didn't have a ton of bandwidth for writing like a 20 email funnel sequence. Like I just, I don't have time for that. Makes me I kind of want to throw up thinking about it. So it's like, like some of it was like, I need to be really efficient because like I just I'm tired and I want to I want to really conserve my energy for facilitating leading and delivering the program not for generating all of the sales around it I I also want to kind of throw in here too, kind of bringing it back to something uh that we mentioned around values where you prioritize or or you prioritize maybe different values than I prioritize and that you have a, a particular model um, that only that didn't require you to go out and execute some crazy sales system because that just wouldn't have been a right fit for you. On the flip side of that, I have a different model than that, mm-hmm. right? And my model only works at a certain kind of scale. And so I do need to be out there growing my audience. And I do need to make sure that we're inviting in enough people at any given time. And so I'm going to make different choices around how many emails I send out on the last day than yep. you're going to make. And that, you know, we can we could argue maybe the whether that's good or bad. But I think the point that I want to make is that the way you did it is not the right way, because that's the right. whole conversation we're trying right. to have here, right? right? Is that there isn't right. a right way. But it's like, what are the options? What are your values? What kind of experience are you trying to create? And then how yep. do you design a sales process that is true to those things and yep. is still effective? So let's get into the effective piece. How Walk us through what the sales process then actually looked like for the Equitable Business Incubator. Yeah. I had a pretty short sales cycle. And again, this was like exhaustion, timing, also not wanting to put myself through like the nervous system load of a month mm-hmm. of doing this stuff and so I think it was really just a couple weeks and there were a couple things you know and, I, and it might be good to say like also because I think you brought this up at the beginning um you know there are like I did want to and I had anxiety for sure and like was thinking about broadening the, using this also as an opportunity for growth of audience mm-hmm. because I think it would have been a mistake not to but I realized sort of early on that like it didn't I didn't necessarily and I can talk specifically about some of the things I did but um like I wanted to reach new people but I didn't necessarily need to sell to them Oh that is such a good distinction um so like 
So, well, for instance, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, like one of the things that I did, and this is again, like efficiency, efficacy, is I like I created, or I should say my, my art director girlfriend created um, (laughs) some Instagram stuff for me that was like really targeted towards you're really into this kind of topic and you might not know Mm -hmm. about us, but you know, some people that like us, you know, like that kind of mid-awareness people. And I didn't create it for people that already follow us on Instagram. I created it to share or to have other people share. And then I reached out into my network of like other business owners and particularly people that reach larger, much larger audiences than I do. I was like, hey, would you share this? And this is the deal and blah, blah, blah. And got a ton of engagement from that uh, and a lot of new followers. And like, um, you know, they did really, really well. And we we don't have, I mean, I don't, I don't even know off the top of my head, like somewhere between five and 600 followers on Instagram. Like that is not a place I've ever invested in a lot of growth. So that was like one thing was, you know, kind of keeping in mind like the immediate sales that I wanted to make, but also like, can I generate more conversation and get people like kind of more in the room for next time or later or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other thing I did to back up is uh, I had a early interest list and that was either from folks I had talked to directly and I added them by like manually and was like, can I add you to this list? Or um, from like website email newsletter signups. So I had like a teaser even before I knew what the thing really was going to be or what the dates were that was like, I'm doing this thing. Uh, you want to know about it? So I had a list of, I think it was only like 20 to 24 people maybe on that list. And I emailed them like, very in a very direct like hey doors are open here's the deal these are the like three bullet points of like if this would be a good fit for you but I think it is because you're on this list and I'm going to tell everybody else in the world 20 like tomorrow so you know you get a head start and so that was like I think I got the first couple signups like literally within 15 minutes of that email landing um, because they were waiting for it obviously Uh, And there are people that I've worked with in depth and know me and my work and that kind of stuff. Um, And, you know, and that's like really soothing to like sales anxiety to have that happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think those are kind of like the main things. Um, And then I guess I'll circle back to the like, do I send three emails on the last day and my wanting to like throw up and die? Because I think you were there when a, a, a oh, yes. super lovely and wise colleague and I was like, I need you all to coach me. Like, please mastermind friends, help me to get over all of my mindset bullshit around like not wanting to bother people. You know, and I think like a lot of people, my sort of like default is like sit back and like chop down a tree and then hope that people five miles away, like hear it in the forest. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, you know, I think so part of this is also an exercise in like kind of stretching myself and being a little uncomfortable of, all right, I'm going to send a couple more emails than I feel like I really want to and like try and close some extra seats and that kind of stuff. It's just like what we've been kind of saying here is that there is a scenario where I think sending two or three emails on the last day of a campaign makes sense and is in many ways a kind thing to do 
And this is not the thing, right? Um, And so, or it's probably not that kind of thing. And so, you know, again, it's thinking about what's the experience? Well, how do you want people to feel about this? The other thing I really want to call out for people here too, is something that you said about, you sent a very direct email to that early interest list. And I think really most of your communication around the incubator, said it again, equitable business incubator (laughs) was very direct. And one of the things that we have seen become just incredibly pervasive in online marketing, information marketing in particular, um, which this program would basically fall into, is indirect uh, communication as a way of manipulating people into recognizing needs that they don't have or that they don't want to fill right now, or that aren't priorities for them. Um, and this is something you haven't seen this content yet, but I've literally just created content for the network talking about the difference between explicitly asking for the sale versus implicitly asking for the sale versus, uh, direct pitches and indirect pitches. And when you use, them at different times, because there are legitimate reasons why you would use more of an indirect pitch. But largely, it's being used to exploit people or manipulate people now. And so I really appreciate you calling out that you were very clear and direct. You asked for this thing. I made this thing. I would like you to buy it now if it's a good fit for you. Here's how to determine whether that's true. And even the content that you created for Instagram, I think, fell into that category as well. You there was content to it. There was a sort of a, a teaching component to it. But in terms of content, sales content that goes out on the internet, it was pretty direct, right? It was like, yeah. if you believe these things, or if this is something that you drive with, this I made this for you, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of those there's a, there's a lot of Seth Godin's work that lately is hitting me in all the wrong ways. <laughs> but one of the things that I always come back to with him is this idea of, I made this for you, being a very genuine, but also incredibly effective way to approach sales and marketing in general. And that's kind of what I'm hearing all over this is as a way of kind of defining your sales process here. Well, and I think like, you know, if we go back to sort of the beginnings of this conversation and some of our like shared language, you know, there's a way to think about that as pushing back against the sort of like linear progress, hungry ghost model of like, you Mm -hmm. always need more eyeballs, you need more followers, you need more signups, like all of those kinds of things. And it's like, you know, for me, I'm always like, I don't know that I do at this very moment. And that might change in the future. Like, you know, who knows? The model might shift. At some point, I'll have a book out and like, we'll need more people than like the 12 (laughs) beloveds that, um, you know, (laughs) that I can text about it or whatever. But, um, you know, but I think some of that's like really, you know, operating in the ecosystem that I already have built and I'm already in and the relationships that I've nurtured over the years and like really being okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, like that I don't need to strive because I'm getting all of those messages every day. Um, and I definitely had moments like in this process where I was like, oh God, I'm not doing enough or I'm not reaching enough people or whatever. But I, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's like, it just feels better because it's more in alignment and more in like integrity with sort of like Wanderwell and my work and all of those things. We'll be back with more of this conversation with Kate Strathman in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. 
What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Did somebody say sales? Making the sale gets infinitely easier when your prospects are highly engaged, excited members of your community. When your prospects are members of your community, you can easily keep your brand top of mind, personally nurture the right people, and regularly demonstrate the value you can provide. And Mighty Networks, of course, makes it easy. When you run your brand community on Mighty Networks, not only can you connect with the people most likely to buy your next offer, you can make that offer right inside your network. Mighty Networks premium courses and groups features make it easy to offer higher levels of service as paid offers that increase both the value of what you're offering and your profit margin. With Mighty Networks, you can build a whole value creation and sales ecosystem all in one place for the people your business cares about most. In other words, Mighty Networks makes it easy to build products and sell them at the same time. Check it out for yourself. Go to MightyNetworks.com to get started free of charge. That's MightyNetworks.com. What Works is also brought to you by the What Works Network. You have a bold vision for your small business. You can see it all grown up with efficient systems, effective offers, and a sustainable business model that pays you well. And the gap between where you're at and that bold vision can feel daunting. At times, you feel like you're just spinning your wheels. You work in fits and starts on building that bold vision for your business, but as time passes, you realize you haven't made much progress at all. You're hard at work day in and day out, and you're largely doing the same things, getting the same results. It's really tempting to think that the key to picking up the pace is a magic formula or a shiny object, but you know better. You know the key to growing through this phase and on to the next one is consistent action and uncompromising commitment to making your business stronger every single day. So what's stopping you? Well, it's probably a lack of focus, a lack of structure, and a lack of support. And the What Works Network can help with all three. Each month, we focus on a different aspect of building a stronger business, just like we do here on the podcast. This month, it's making me ask. Next month, it's speaking up. And in November, we're talking about building your skills and leveling up. We layer a solid structure onto that focus by giving you an action planning kit you can use each month to commit to a project, process, or principle to apply to your business. And then we check in with you throughout the month in weekly and monthly events to help you make progress and get unstuck. And of course, we're here to support you with on-demand, go-at-your-own-pace community support on our dedicated platform. Focus, structure, and support, all to help you take consistent action toward the bold vision you have for your business. We're opening the doors to the What Works Network soon, and next month, we're focusing on speaking up, how we can find our voices, be heard, and grow our businesses to make an impact. Get your invitation to the What Works Network by going to explorewhatworks.com slash network. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. I, I look forward to having the conversation with you about growing your audience when the book is when oh, you're right, or not when the book is coming out because we need to have that conversation way sooner. No. <laughs> but I look forward to it. Okay, so I don't know how we are 45 minutes into this conversation already, but we need to get to actually 
talking specifically about some of the practices in the market that are causing harm or have the potential to cause harm. Because again, it's, you know, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of possibilities, potential opportunities here. And there's also some things causing real harm or having the potential to cause real harm. So um, let's, let's get into that. One of the words that you often use to describe sort of the bucket all of these things fall into is the squeeze. Tell me what you mean by <laughs> the squeeze. There was somebody I was curious about their work recently. Mm-hmm. And so I like signed up for a thing, some free thing, and then was like, horrified, even though I should have expected this, uh, that I got like bombarded with emails, some of which had like countdown timers to what they wanted to sell to people. And so when I talk, when I, I think when I say the squeeze, which is my sort of like gesture, gestures vaguely in the distance term for all this stuff, it's just like to, to talk a way to talk about the urgency and the like, you need this now or you're missing out and the like FOMO and the scarcity and like all of those kinds of like anxiety, like let's create as much anxiety about people missing out as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost like throw people out of discernment for themselves. Yeah. Um, by using a lot of pressure. And I think that term is actually like some bro marketer came up with it. It's not my term, but <laughs> of like, you know, it's like the idea is like you get people to the end of a funnel and then you like push them through the final. I don't know what the right word is, but the, the final little bottleneck. Um, yeah. I mean, we used to call them squeeze pages, right? I don't I don't I don't see that language used very often anymore. We, we just call them landing pages or, you know, there's a sales yeah. page. But a squeeze page is a, a page, whether it's for an opt in or whether it's for a sale where there is literally nothing else you can do but buy or sign up. And it is the whole page is designed to squeeze you into that action. And, you know, I, I get part of it. It's like we where our attention is all over the place. People it's really it's really hard to design in a way that gives yeah. people options but doesn't then distract them unnecessarily. Like people just read web pages in in unusual ways that we can't predict. So like I get the desire to squeeze people toward the action that you want them to take, ideally that is in their best interest to take, right? But what it's I think where it goes is that it's all about what you want, what you as the marketer yeah. or salesperson want as opposed to what's actually in the best interest of the person on the other end. And for me, like when I think about what are the exploitative practices, it's, while there are specific things that I can name or could name, I think it's more the intent behind it that I get a little or not a little, I get a lot frustrated with and things that I have certainly fallen uh, into myself as a marketer and salesperson, which is prioritizing what I want to have happen versus prioritizing what's in the best interest of the person receiving the email, landing on the page, reading the copy, whatever it might be, or, you know, even in a live 
a phone call, right? Or a, a live Zoom call where you're you're going through a sale. Um, and so for me, it's like I'm I'm looking at every single practice, every single technique that I have ever been taught in terms of marketing and sales and saying, all right, how do I take what is good from this? Or what do I take? How do I take what's effective from this? But but do it in a way so that it is designed to help people make the best decision for them, as opposed to just getting them to do what I want them to do. And it, and it leads you to make some very specific changes, things like just as, cause I know people are going to be like, well, what do you mean by that Tara? Yep. Things like I don't build uh, landing pages anymore that don't have outgoing links. Right. So like mm -hmm. our main sales page still has our freaking navigation at the top of it. Right. And there was a time when I would have never done that because the whole point is to get them to buy. Right. But yep. what if they want to look at the about page? What if they want to check out the podcast first? There's yep. other things that would actually help them make the sale if they knew or if it helped me make the sale, make them make the purchase if they knew they existed. So why not let them see it? When I think there's like, there's a control aspect of this mm, yes. too that I think is really playing out and it, you know, and it connects to like, you know, I know we, we made notes around lack of consent. Yeah. And yeah. you know, like what comes to mind for me when it's like the landing page with, you know, and you've taken all of the context out, like yes. people can't go research more. They, they, they only get what you give them is like you're really what you're trying to do is control the response and the outcome as much as possible. And I would say that's like, you know, and that and I, I think that the, you know, if we go back to like, what are the values or what's the like, impetus behind those sets of decisions? It's about growth. It's about like profit, you know, like those are all like linear growth choices. Mm -hmm. um, because you only want people to do one thing, which is buy. And you want to tell them what that need is. And then you want to fill that need rather than like giving people the agency and the context, I think, to like really identify, discern their own needs, discern whether this is like the right choice for them, collaborate with them if it's not and you can change something in your process or, you know, like there's a whole other way that I think is like mutually respectful to do things. But yeah, I think as you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, control Interesting. Yes. I, I have enjoyed conversations around consent when it comes to marketing. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in the semantics of that. Whereas control, I think, gives us maybe a broader lens to look at the whole system through versus like, well, did they give me their email address for this purpose or that purpose? Like, well, okay, that actually may or may not matter. But what are you are you trying to control their next action? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's good. I like that. I think people are going to like that. One of the things that often comes up around exploitative or manipulative practices in marketing and sales is uh, the different laws of persuasion. Um, you mentioned scarcity already. And that reciprocity is another. The law of liking is another. Uh, reciprocity is basically like if I put out lots of good free content, then you will have to buy from me or you will be incentivized yep. to buy from me. Again, it comes down to control. I, control is is such a again such a great way to a uh, great lens to look at all of this. Um, 
So this, the idea of the law of reciprocity is that, yes, if I give you a good webinar and I teach you something, then you are going to be, uh, not just more likely to buy because you're more informed, you're going to be more likely to buy because I've given you something and now you feel obligated to give me something in response. And often what I am asking for in response is not an equal exchange to what you have already received. Now, yes, you're, you are giving me that again in exchange for something else. Um, but what I, I think there's something to talk about here in that I don't necessarily think a quote unquote lead magnet or a webinar or any kind of free content, hello, this is a free podcast, is a bad thing. But why are you doing it? What is the intent behind it? Is the intent to create that experience of reciprocity and to control the exchange uh, such that people feel obligated to give back to you? Or are you legitimately educating, informing, entertaining people, creating a relationship, and therefore creating the openness to make an offer? Um, it is, again, a very semantic difference. It is perhaps a, just a lot of gray area, but I think that it's worth, uh, as marketers and salespeople, I think it's worth thinking through why we're doing the things that we're doing and the ways that we're doing right. them for this particular reason, but also for many. Well, it's like, are you are you giving people more agency or your pro in your process or are mm. you taking away agency in your process mm -hmm. by design? And I think a lot of the like, the harmful stuff that you know we're calling out it's it's like designed to remove agency and discernment um so that people will like feel like they have to make they have no other choice but to make the sale or to buy the thing mm -hmm. um and I, I think that's like when i look at a lot of the practices like that's one of the sort of lenses that i'm looking at is like Am I create like am I creating agency for people? Like, do they really truly feel like it's up to them whether they want to do this thing or not, um, or pay me money, um, or do they feel like they have to? It's probably it's worth saying that in all of the destabilization of this year, like the amount of scarcity that a lot of us are operating under in reality because our you know businesses have been disruptive or just because that's like what the air we're breathing i think that makes it really hard because sometimes it's like it's hard to be in a like non-anxious consensual sales process when your business is on the line yeah you know it's like I, I think these things can get really tricky when we're like our anxieties around whether like what revenue we need to close are really real or yeah, I've, I've definitely felt that it's like um whether it's whether it's even just like because I feel that or because it's it's re like we really have real revenue needs in our business all the time, of course. As I do start thinking about how we're going to wrap this up, <laughs> knowing that there is so much more that we could talk about, so much more that we can cover and we will uh, hopefully in future episodes. So if you've got questions, if you want, if there's particular things you want us to talk through around these topics, um, around creating businesses that do less harm, that are actively working against systems that are harmful or exploitative or manipulative, let us know. You can you know where to find me on Instagram, I think. Uh, shoot me a message. I'd love to know what you want to hear more about. Actually, where I wanted to go was the difference between actual mindset 
blocks that we have things where it's like, are you making this decision because you want to be less manipulative and give your buyers greater agency? Or are you making this decision because you're scared or you don't want to be an imposition? You don't want to take up space because there's so much of this conversation that can be used to reinforce bullshit mental patterns that we have. Totally. (laughs) I, I would love to hear what, what your response is to that. Well, I think, you know, one of my responses to that, or at least what I, I should probably tell this to myself more, but like, at least what I tell clients um, is that like, most of us that are asking that question are so far on the end of the spectrum of like, not doing toxic bullshit stuff, uh, that our fears are sort of unfounded. You know, like I would, I would have to work really hard and learn a whole bunch of stuff that I have no facility with to like create a really toxic marketing campaign, I think. Um, And I'd probably do it really badly. (laughs) You know, it's like... You're probably right. (laughs) So like, I think, you know, that's my first answer. Um, And I think the other one is like slowing down. You know, like I think like one of the things I've been thinking about a lot this year, especially in my like, you know, continued work on anti-racism and white privilege and stuff like that is whenever I'm like most at risk at causing harm, I'm in urgency. Mm -hmm. And that's true every time. Um, And I think that that's like, when I think about sort of like how to discern between how I'm making choices and am I letting my like, you know, my shit get in the way. Um, you know, and all the messages that like as a queer woman in the world that I take on about not taking up space, um, which are vast. (laughs) And so, you know, and I think some of it's just like, really coming back to like ground and slow down, and get Mm -hmm. back in alignment with values and like get back in alignment with like, who am I making this for? And like, all of those kinds of things um, are like, at least how I get myself out of those moments, Mm -hmm. which, you know, especially in like having to sell in a way that I haven't done it in a long time and filling seats and having to be time-based, like all my shit came up for sure. (laughs) Like I was definitely like, Oh God. I said like, I haven't felt some of these feelings in years. (laughs) Um, Here they are again. Um, You know, and I think a lot of it was like having really good conversations with people that know me well and we're like no Kate like you'd be doing a disservice to people if you didn't tell them about this thing and you know and I think also coming back to like who am I what kinds of like gifts knowledge skills do I bring to the table like what can I add to this conversation um so one of that one of those the results of that was like one of my last emails was about the meta conversation of like, Mm -hmm. what is the, what does sales look like in the context of an incubator that's looking at anti-capitalism in part? Um, Like, what does that even mean? Uh, And that's like, you know, it's alignment with the praxis of what we'll be doing. So there's like a piece of it that's like, well, this is also, uh, we'll be having these conversations, but I think, you know, that's also like, who I am and the kind of like how my brain works. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was like authentic to it's really like all of the concerns that we're talking about. 
it's interesting that your sales campaign, you're a little further removed from your sales campaign. We literally just wrapped up our last sales campaign on Monday. So kind of reflecting on that for myself, there's so much of, there was almost, there was a meta component for to yeah. that for me as well. Um, thinking again, thinking about values, thinking about what I want to prioritize as part of the experience. And for me, honesty and transparency um, and personal reflection are the things that we prioritize so much at what works. It's part of the podcast, it's part of how the network works, but it's also become an integral part of our marketing and sales mm -hmm. process as well. So as opposed to telling people what they need to do or even bringing in a huge teaching component because I'm going through a sales campaign and that's what I got to do. I got to teach people stuff so that they got to, so that they feel obligated to buy from me. A huge part of that campaign was a personal reflection. These are the things I've learned. Yeah. This is why things are structured the way they are. This is why I think this is in your best interest. But even if it's not, here's what you can do instead, or here's what here's how yeah. you can incorporate these same ideas. Um, and still that I made this for you and here's why kind of piece to it. But so again, like a campaign of mine that looks very, very different from a campaign of yours because they're different models. They're different. They have those campaigns have different needs, different audiences, different experiences. The bones of it or where it comes from is very similar in tr thinking through yeah. like how do I actually demonstrate values that are important and are countercultural in a lot of yep. ways or at least in this you know in the business world um, to create the experience that I want people to have so that then as you said, so that they have agency, so they have control over their own decisions, um, yep. much more than, you know, squeezing them with a countdown right. timer. Well, and I think it's like, you know, everything you're saying, it's in alignment with your product and what you're selling, mm -hmm. right? Like, if you did some, you know, squeeze campaign or like had a lot of urgent selling, um, you know, much like I, like I was saying, like, somebody could get I could put a lot of pressure and like knock someone off the fence they're sitting on to like join the incubator and then they'd probably have a terrible experience. Yeah. Um, or it would like, you know, um, there are a couple of folks that I actually steered out of it and like could have met revenue goal and didn't because they just weren't the right fit. They weren't in the same stage as the other folks that were in it. And it would have like the, the conversation would have shifted in a way that I didn't want it to. Um, and I think that's the same thing with like a what works campaign. It's like you're you're promoting, you know, the experience that like marketing has to be in integrity with the experience that people are going to find when they get there, too. And if they're not yeah. like the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. And I mean, I literally had to untangle that for myself over the last three years. It took me a full year of knowing how I wanted the community to operate, knowing what I wanted our values to be, trying to make that work, to realize that the marketing and sales process that I had developed effectively for years was completely out of alignment with the product. We were creating the wrong expectations, even if I wasn't being manipulative or yeah. trying to exert control yeah. over people. We were just setting people up for the wrong thing and it wasn't working. It, it just didn't work. And it's, it's amazing to have gotten to a point now where I feel like 
okay, everything is in line. Everything is in alignment. And guess what? It works better now. And yeah. now when people yeah. join, they get it immediately and they dive right in. It's like, holy crap, where was this three years ago? But it's, you know, we, there, we feel so much pressure uh, to fall into sales or, or to adopt sales processes, sales systems, uh, because we tell ourselves, oh, I'm not a good salesperson. I'm not, I don't know how to do this. So I'll follow someone else's instructions when it really is an incredibly personal process and it needs to be mm -hmm. uh, to fulfill your values and to be effective at the same time. Okay. We really should wrap things up. And <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity to say anything that you're like that you were hoping to get in or excited about that we haven't gotten a chance to touch on yet. There's one thing that uh, in terms of like the urgency and the squeeze, like an exam uh -huh. a really beautiful example of how to use that for good that I wanted yes. to offer yeah, yeah. and to you. Um, which is my friend Holly Ren Spalding, who is a poet and teacher and her business Poetry Forge. It's a community of poets and writers and uh, creatives and she offers a bunch of different programs and classes and that. And she, she has a program that she runs, I think seasonally called uh, 21 Day Poetry Challenge. And back in June, kind of in the midst of like uprising, uh, she sent uh, like, and it was like a Sunday afternoon, like cart closes in four hours email. But the pitch was, hey, if you've been looking for this experience, here it is. The sale was low pressure. Yeah. But the urgency was, if you sign up, I'm just going to donate everything that comes in from here till close. And I don't remember off the top of my head, actually, what she donated to, but she named like, it's, you know, it's going straight to here. My goal is $1,000. Have at it if you want to or not, whatever. And she raised over $4,000. Oh my word. And this is like a 21 day pro like kind of lightweight email, mostly email program. So it's, I, mean, I think it's like under $300 or $300 range. Mm -hmm. But I was like, this is cool. This is like such a good use of last minute. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I think it was really authentic to how she was feeling that day and in the moment and then the like churn of like protests and all of that stuff. So I wanted to like, put that out in the world to listeners like you can use urgency and last minute cart closing for good um, yes. and not just for sales i love that and that's a perfect place to leave things too because while we have really just paddled our way through a whole lot of gray area today <laughs> i think i hope what people take away from it is that it's not that there are certain things that are off limits it's that there is uh, an intent or there's, yeah, there's a foundational intent that needs to be in the right place. And that that is the right place for you and your business and your offer in order to create a sales system that is going to be effective and create the experience that you want for people. Um, and that in doing that, we are pushing back against things that are causing real harm and damage in our culture and our society today. Um, and I think that gives us a really amazing opportunity as business owners in a capitalist system to do something good without having to 
give up everything and join a commune. Well, and I think that's like one of maybe another point to land on to just layer on that. I, you know, I want people to have their oxygen masks on. I want them to have their vacations. Like I don't want people to not have income or not even to like not have robust incomes. I want everybody to be taken care of. Like this is really a project of like, can we all like meet needs? Not I have to get mine taken away from me. Kate, I will ask you the question that I ask everyone at the end of every episode, which is what are you excited about right now? Well, I would be remiss and inept if I didn't say I'm excited about doing the equitable business incubator again. By the time this comes out, uh, I will have dates on the website um, and be enrolling. So that'll start in October again. And again, it's like there is no seven point system to this. But it's been a really robust conversation and I like I've learned so much and it's just been super fun. And I know uh, the folks that have taken it have gotten a lot out of just being in the room with other folks asking these questions and being really honest about what's working, what's not. um, And the lack of clean, easy solutions <laughs> as we're, um, you know, grappling with all this stuff. Kate Strathman, thank you so much for this conversation and uh, sharing your experiences and the uh, lifetime of learning that you have done on these subjects. Thank you, Tara. All right. So we barely scratched the surface on this conversation, and I'm betting that your brain is swirling with questions, possibilities, and probably some ideas right now. So I wanted to pull out a few ideas from the conversation to give you a jumping off point for thinking about your next steps. One thing that Kate and I came back to over and over again in the conversation was values. What are the values we personally hold? What are the values that are key to the business? And what do those values mean for how we approach sales and selling? Your values, my values, and Kate's values might all be different. But by prioritizing our particular values, we can create a sales system that works for us and does less harm in the ways that are most important to us. Another idea that I think is key is knowing what you and your business really need. One of the reasons my sales approach differs from Kate's is that the needs of my business are different than the needs of her business. And those needs aren't arbitrary. They're based on what it takes to deliver a great experience to our customers and fulfill our value promises. Consider what your business really needs and what approach to sales is a good fit for those needs before you decide on a particular system or tactic. Finally, Kate made the incredible observation that so many of the sales tactics that are potentially harmful are about exerting control over the person buying. The tactic is designed to get the recipient to do what we want them to do instead of creating an experience where we can all make the best decisions for ourselves. Are you trying to control the results of your sales process? Are you trying to engineer your system to guarantee those results? If so, it's probably time to reconsider and create a system that invites exchange instead of controlling it. Find out more about Kate Strathman at wonderwellconsulting.com. 
What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt, and our production assistants are Kristen Runvik and Lou Blazer. Get more of What Works delivered to your inbox every Thursday. I share a letter on building a stronger business and becoming a stronger leader, as well as handpicked resources to help you grow in our free weekly newsletter. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly to sign up.